It's been a dramatic couple of weeks as we talk about Anabaptist history. First, plunging into the baptism debates, which ripped apart German society in the early 1500s. And then, last week, talking about the literal violence that ripped apart Germany in the early 15th century. Partly sparked by, partly incorporated into, and partly as a direct result of these baptism debates. High drama on the late medieval, well, early modern stage. So this week, we are going to take an intermission. A moment of peace, but not necessarily to completely disconnect ourselves from the story that is playing out. Intermission is the time when you go out and you mingle and you chatter and everybody goes to the bathroom and everybody tries to talk to each other about who done it or where the movie's going or how the acting's doing. Intermission is a little bit of a lost treasure in American cinema because it gave us a time to swap it up. It gave us a time to process a little bit what's going on. The biggest, most foundational and hard question of the Reformation that drove so much of the high drama that we have seen has been the question of God's acceptance. Who is good enough? Who passes muster? Who's in and who's out? It was a pressing question of the day for the institutional church, for the Reformation, and for the radicals too. Everybody had a stake in how this question got answered. So on today's intermission, I would like us to dwell on this question ourselves. Not just seeing it as a historical problem for historical people, but as a question that we must deal with with some integrity and honesty ourselves. If we together claim to be the body of Christ and we individually are members of it, 1 Corinthians 12.27, then who do we accept on God's behalf if we dare? Only the baptized? The our radical Anabaptist forebears hammered Mark 16, 16 again and again and again. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And they said it's belief, belief, belief. And of course, they had an early modern individualist idea of what belief means. It says it has to be about what your personal ideas are and how you express them. But who gets to decide what belief is? And who gets to decide what body is being addressed in Mark 16.16? Mark 16.16, by context, could well be addressed to a community. So this conflict about baptism, about which, which we find at the core of our history, is it still where we find ourselves hung up? on this question of who does God accept? 
And are we still fighting the same wars about individualist belief versus collective belief as they were 500 years ago? Or do we say that God accepts the righteous? From now, in 2 Timothy 4.8, from now on there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. The crown of righteousness is certainly a sign of God's acceptance. Surely. But is it the only sign? Is doing good works, giving generously, is that really, truly the core of what it means to be accepted by God? Or do we listen to Psalm 84? Verses 4 and 5. Happy are those who live in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. In which case, those who go on pilgrimage on foot to Jerusalem are the ones who are accepted by God. We see these different snapshots, these different images throughout the Bible of Ways that people find God's presence, God's acceptance through baptism and the forgiveness of sins, through righteousness and the rectification of the heart, by walking up hundreds and hundreds of stone steps. The presence of God, God coming to dwell alongside, shows up in all of these myriad ways. These are all tremendous gifts. These moments, these opportunities, these abilities. Gifts that God puts within the reach of many. Although I would argue that walking to Jerusalem clearly isn't available to everyone. And if we're honest, doing good works, helping others, giving generously, even hearing the gospel and being baptized aren't available to everyone either. There are people who are born who will never be able to help someone across the street. There are people who are born who will never hear a word of the gospel. Are they somehow beyond God's acceptance? These gifts must be understood as such, as tremendous privileges, things that have been put within our grasp. And yeah, it requires effort on our part to reach out and, and take them and to live into the fullness of the opportunity we've been given, but they are gifts nonetheless, gifts that we must recognize are not universally available. Is God's acceptance then a privilege? A privilege granted to a few that happen to have those gifts in front of them and happen to reach out their hand and take them? Is that really what the Bible preaches? Does someone living in ease, who has never had to steal or fight to survive, who has plenty of time to read Scripture and go worship God, does that person have a greater guarantee of God's care and attention? As was noted earlier today, one of our Scriptures comes from a somewhat unusual source. Sirach. The book of the wisdom of Sirach is... An, incredible, an incredibly interesting story. 
a book that is rejected from the canon of scriptures by the Protestant community, but also happens to contain the first historically recorded reference to a canon of Hebrew scriptures. In the introduction of the book, when it's talking about the canon of the prophets and the law and the writings, it uses these three words that are used to describe the Old Testament in the Jewish tradition, the prophets, the law, and the writings. And it's the first recorded instance of this idea of a holy canon. A wonderfully ironic, contradictory story written by someone claiming to be the grandson of Jesus, but not that Jesus. In 200 B.C., it was, it, it was acknowledged from the first to be a translation from the Hebrew and therefore imperfect. The book itself tells you that much is lost in the translation. Coming from the community in Alexandria, Greece, where the Hebrew people founded themselves firmly and throve for centuries, but speaking Greek. And so this book was included in the Greek Jewish scriptures that were being read by the composers of the New Testament, being read by Jesus, the Septuagint. Now, it didn't make the cut later on down the road. 200 years after it had been written, it was generally considered to be part of the, of the, of the Old Testament. But later on, Jewish scholarship said, well, it wasn't written by a prophet or even about a prophet. It's a book written by somebody's grandson who was really wise and said some nice things. So we're going to put it aside and say it's a good book for wisdom, but not necessarily a core of doctrine. And the Protestants who followed on some of that Jewish scholarship didn't include it either. But for the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Oriental Orthodox, it is and always has been part of Scripture since before the New Testament was written. But even for those who don't see divine inspiration in its pages, even those who do not accept this book of Sirach, I think it has something profound to say about acceptance. God will not show partiality to the poor, but he will listen to the prayer of one who is wronged. He will not ignore the supplication of the orphan or the widow when she pours out her complaint. We have been so thoroughly Christianized, I think, in our hearts and understanding that when we hear God say, it says, God will not show partiality to the poor, we're like, ooh, that's bad. No, no, no. It would have been well understood the other way around, that showing partiality to the poor back in the day meant casting them aside, destroying them, ignoring them, even plundering them, because it's easy to take their stuff, the little that they have, they've got no resources to defend themselves. Showing partiality to the poor used to be a bad thing. And this passage is turning it around. This passage from a book that, whose acceptance is not universal tells us something, I think, about God's acceptance. That it is 
in many ways, universal. He will listen to the prayer of the one who is wronged, will not ignore the supplication of the orphan or the widow when she pours out her complaint. We know that there are things people do that are not acceptable to God. We know that part of ourselves is cruel, clutching, lazy, casually destructive. It's in there. And we know that that part God does not accept. But see, to call our sin part of ourselves is already to believe its lies. Beyond and beneath everything that leads you to do the things that you hate or causes you to make mistakes is your true self. What God sees as your true you. The person you were created to be in Christ. And that is, in fact, in all of us. Pick your worst monster throughout history and they will have had planted in them some gem of light, some moment, some interaction of goodness with some child or making some sandwich for some sick person, something there, even in the most irredeemable person. Not just the rich and educated and leisurely who can get up in the morning and read scripture or do mindfulness meditations or pray for peace before going into the office in the morning to make bank, which they can then give away to all their neighbors. Not just those of us who enjoy those privileges. Those are good things to do. And so you don't have to just lean on the word of Syrac. We brought in the big guns. Luke 18, 9-14. The parable of the Pharisee and the traitor. Let's not forget that tax collectors were not just mooches and leeches on the system. They weren't just people who took money and didn't give anything back. They were doing it to soak their neighbors for Rome's benefit. They were traitors And the broken heart of a traitor is more accepted, justified in the eyes of God, than all the self-aggrandizement of someone trying to live by every jot and tittle of the law. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. I propose that the sectarian answers that we see in the story of our Anabaptist forebears, the sectarian answers that we hear trotted out now about who God accepts and who God rejects, all of those sectarian answers that say if you do our rituals, if you do our stuff, you're accepted, and if you don't, you're not, shatter against the reality of a sovereign all-wise, all-loving God. A God whose choices and priorities are above and beyond ours. A God who
who has planted seeds of God's own goodness in the heart of every human being. Who's acceptable to God? That's such a 16th century question. I like to think that perhaps over a few hundred years, we've managed to go back to asking with the scriptures a slightly better question. What is acceptable to God? Not who. What is acceptable to God? Which parts of what's going on in here? Which parts of what's going on out there in our culture are accepted and part of God's plan? Because the answer to who, if somebody comes up to you and asks, who, is accept- who do you believe is acceptable to God? Who do you say is acceptable to God? That answer is actually shockingly easy in my view. That answer is always you. The part of you right then that asked that question, not the part of you that did that thing last year that you really, really hate and can't get over and hurt somebody, but the part of you right then that asked that question, the you that wanted to know more, the you that was open to the perspective of God, that is accepted by God. That you at the core, that one asking the question. We don't know exactly what God's acceptance means. We don't know exactly how these elements of of baptism and communion, these rituals of church time and prayer, of study, of generosity, of caring for others. We don't know exactly how it all interacts and exactly where some bar is crossed where now you're accepted by God. But we do know that God's acceptance has tremendous implications for this life and the next. We know it means grace and peace, both in our hearts and in our hands and our tongues. Both in what's going on in here and what's going on out there in the culture around us. So, this morning, as we ponder how people fought so viciously over this question, I want us to spend a little bit of time answering it ourselves to one another. If you would dare... I invite you to seek out a partner on your pew, someone nearby that you can offer a gesture of God's acceptance to as a reminder that God is deeply and powerfully invested in that true you that dwells within. A reminder that your God and my God The God of all people and all creation loves you and accepts you, the strong you, the you that stands in the light of Christ. Of course, in my, for me, the most profound gesture of acceptance of all time has got to be the hug. So with these pew partners of yours, I'm asking for you to experiment with hugs. If you would be so kind, it doesn't have to be a a, a big bear hug. 
It can, in fact, as we all well know, most of hugging is done with the head. So what I'm asking for you to do is for everybody to, in a moment, stand up and find somebody to hug. It doesn't have to be with your whole body, but hug with your head at least. Because that moment when a baby, which if some of you I've talked to, a baby which you accidentally hurt recently, puts her head on you. That is the ultimate experience of acceptance. And it is, to me, a holy reminder of how it is God feels about us. Despite it all. Another holy reminder will come later in the service of communion as we take the elements together and remember our bond together in Christ, one who loved and accepted us first, teaching us to love others. But right now, I invite everybody to stand up. We are beloved. Not our hateful selves, not our blind and short-sighted selves, but those are shadows, our passing things, feeding off of and clinging to the kernel of good that is always wholly and fully accepted by our God. Show that loving acceptance to one another in your gestures. Amen.